Good morning. Shall we get going into the Word? If you have your Bibles, we're in Romans 9, eventually. Amelia Earhart said, You haven't seen a tree until you've seen its shadow from the sky. Hmm. Flying does give you a whole new perspective on life and the world around us. And sometimes we need that, that new, that, that fresh perspective. And so this morning we're going to fly high over Romans 9, 10, and 11 so that we can appreciate the shadow they cast on our sibling relationships as a family of God. And so our task this morning is, is to explore these three chapters so that we can add another layer of understanding of what Paul wants to accomplish in this letter. Because oftentimes we read Romans 1 through 11 and we think about, you know, we don't understand really the dynamic that's playing out as these believers listened to those chapters. So we're going to get to chapter 1. I promise, two weeks from today actually, I'm out of town next weekend. So Ken's got the easiest passage in Romans 11, the last three verses. And I've really worked hard to stay away from them this morning. So he's going to do those next Sunday, and then we'll be back in Romans 1, verse 1, in two weeks. Finally, you say. But as you read Romans 1 through 11, after what we've learned about the weak and the strong, I think, I think we'll see some things a little bit differently. Because there are two very real groups who are not getting along very well in the book of Romans. There's this dynamic playing out between the weak and the strong. The weak are Jewish believers who follow the Torah. The strong are Gentile believers who do not follow the Torah. The strong, the Gentiles, have all the power and the prestige in Rome in that day. The, the weak have 2,000 years of tradition and the entire Old Testament on their side. And so Paul, as he goes around the Gentile world, his goal was to what? His goal was to plant a church where together the Jews and the Gentiles would come and they could have peace in their fellowship together. Because the conflict between those two groups could be intense. They really didn't like each other sometimes. If you read the commands of what they're supposed to do, the strong hate the weak. They look down on them as, as kind of lowly. As, as they're just doing this stuff and they got all these worthless rules and regulations. What are they doing all this stuff for? And the weak hate the strong because huh, they don't appreciate the history. They, they don't really, you know, understand that, that what's been going on for 2,000 years and we're just going to, they're a little bit judgy of the Gentiles. And so in Romans 9, Paul tackles the issue of the history of Israel. And he does that through the end of Romans 11. And the issue, you could put it this way. If the promises of God were originally given to Israel, and they were, and if Messiah himself came from Israel, and he did, and if salvation is now offered freely to anyone who believes, and it is, then how is it that Israel not only rejected the Messiah, but continues in that unbelief until this day? Has God canceled all those promises he made to Israel? Have they forfeited their place in the plan of God? Have the promises of God somehow failed? Does God even have a future for this nation? 
and for this people. And then the biggie question that helps us understand the pastoral side of this letter, how do Gentiles and Jews relate to each other in the plan of God? How does this fit together? Because they're not acting like family. They're not really behaving like siblings, not at all. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul tells the story of how God graciously, surprisingly, and sovereignly used the nation of Israel to expand into the church. And it's the story that Paul tells, which is supposed to bring peace in these two factions. It's the story of the history of Israel as told through the lens of, of what happened to the people of God when Christ came. Jesus changed everything. So he looks back at the history of Israel and he says, okay, so things are different now. To the weak in Romans 9 through 11, it's supposed to teach them that God is faithful. He was faithful to the covenant of Abraham. And when the story turns to the Gentiles, it shouldn't bring disunity in the church. It should bring peace because this is what God's doing now. And to the strong, the Gentiles, Romans 9 through 11 is supposed to teach them that God is faithful to Israel, even if he brings in the Gentiles into the story. And he does promise a future redemption for Israel, so it's okay. Therefore, be humble. The result of all this should be praised toward God and should be peace in the church in the midst of this Roman Empire. So what's our plan this morning? Well, we're going to fly really high. Then we're going to look at the two parts. He says something to the weak. He says something to the strong. It'll be very clear, theoretically. So let's fly high. The view from high above. Because flying high helps us understand how, how this massive section of historical theology relates to the pastoral heart of Paul. So we're going to look down for 40,000 feet. As we do, three things stand out. Number one, the names he uses. This is a lesson in history. And think about it. This history is probably not very well known to the strong. They grew up with what names? Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, Homer, Vigil. They knew of Romulus and Remus. They knew of Julius Caesar. They don't know Abraham, Moses, and David, who are they? They knew about Rome and Athens, not Jerusalem and Capernaum. And if the story matters, then Paul's Gentile converts, they're going to need a fresh education in the history of Israel. And so who does he include in that story? In these chapters, it's a very limited selection of people. He, he picks on Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, he mentions Moses, Pharaoh, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jesus. In chapter 11, he brings up Elijah and David. A very interesting set of names. Paul's bringing up major people in the history of Israel because I think they all are taking part in a major a way in which they shape the history of God's people. We often get bogged down as, as to whether this story is about the personal salvation of each of these individuals, and we want to dot the, you know, well, who's saved and who's not saved? And yet nothing is said about the personal salvation of any of these people. 
What is said relates to what? God's choice of them as a conduit of the divine plan for history. Now, salvation isn't ignored. It comes up beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. But the central theme of all of this is the history, what God is doing. It's who is, who's in line to be Messiah? Who are the people of God? Not who personally gets saved. That's not at its point. So he lists these very specific list of people. Second, he talks about events. He traces these turning points in this section of the letter. They're very familiar stories to the weak, not so much to the strong. Chapter 9, verse 4. The heart of the, of the, of the events is this. There's the Jewish people, Israel's. This, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants. Moses, Abraham, David. The receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not who's saved and who's not saved. It's what God is doing. It's his covenant faithfulness. And Paul tells the story in such a way that the, that the faithfulness of God is actually a little surprising. Verse 30 of chapter 9. What should we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? I mean, how did that happen? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Well, that's surprising. The Gentiles are included in the story of God. Hmm. If that's true, that ought to promote peace in the church among siblings, between the strong and the weak. Then he asked questions, oh, a lot of questions, 21 of them to be precise, and then he asks three more at, in the last three verses of chapter 11. Over and over, he asks question after question after question of them, most of them aimed to whom? To the weak. And as this letter is read out loud by Phoebe in these house churches, she's got to be looking at the weak. And as you're sitting there, you're thinking, oh my word, I've got to answer all these questions. And, and, and they're, they're in your mind. Maybe she read slow enough. Maybe she let you answer them as she read. I don't know. But as you sit listening to the letter, at least you're answering them in your head. What then are we going to say? Paul writes, is there injustice on God's part? Is he not just? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Oh, man, I guess. Well, what does molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? I asked then, has God rejected his people? These are really tough questions. It goes on and on and on. There's 21 of them. And what's Paul's point? He wants them, and I think us, to understand two things. Number one, God is faithful. Throughout all of this history, God is faithful. And number two, God's plans. This is not a, just a straightforward chronology. God can be faithful in spite of the fact that some people are unfaithful. And so God can skip and hop and go left, go right. And yet he's faithful 
because he continues to work through Israel for the redemption of the world. That's the goal. If you put it another way, God's faithfulness mean God, means that God shifts from one person to another within his own plan. But through it all, he's still faithful to the covenant, the agreement he made with Abraham. And the problem this letter addresses becomes very clear when we learn to read Romans from the back. Because the weak assert their privileged position. You know, we are, we are the ones he chose. Look at us. And the strong, they assert their dominance in history and their social status in Rome. Yeah, but we got the power. We're in control in Rome. We, you do what we say. And the weak ask, is not Israel the elect of God? And the strong ask a different question. Is it not the case that God's moved on from you? He's using us now. That's because God's work is so big. And Paul is saying that when God included Gentiles in his plan, even if they, they become in the majority of believers, don't interpret that as a sign of God's unfaithfulness to his covenant promises. He's still going to keep those. The divine move from Messiah to Paul through now the Gentile regions of the world, these shifts, they provide a foundation for peace. Now you just get along. This is the movement of God. And this whole section of Romans is not about who gets saved, but about who God is using in his plan. It's about what he's about. And Paul is teaching where we are in the plan of God for worldwide redemption. He uses these names. He uses these events. He asks these questions so we'll just figure it out. It's not about individual predestination. This is the plan, big plan of God. But let's make it rather personal, shall we? Romans 9 verse 1 reveals the heart of Paul as he begins this section. Romans 9.1 says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Four penetrating questions. Number one, do you anguish over those who do not know Jesus? For many of us, the answer is probably not really. Anguish? I don't know. Do we sorrow? Do we grieve like Paul did? No, we'd rather get stuck in some huge theological debate and make that, than make an application. Do I anguish over the lost? Well, maybe we used to, but today? Oh, we know more theology now than we did back then, so we're much more mature. Or are we just too busy? Maybe the modern world disbelieves in hell so much that it's rubbed off on us. Maybe we're so filled with our own concerns that we're not really worried about anybody else. If we were more like Jesus, we would weep over the South Bay like he wept over Jerusalem. 
Question two, do you anguish, do you anguish over your closest friends and family members? Forget the people you don't know. What about the people you do? Paul considered the Jewish people his own people, and he wept over them, and he prayed over them, and he agonized over them. And if we had the heart of the Apostle Paul, fathers would grieve over their children. Husbands would grieve over their unsaved wives, and wives over their unsaved husbands, parents over children, children over parents. When's the last time you wept over your friends who don't know Christ? How do you feel knowing that they're rushing into eternity without a savior? So are we doing good neighbor team for heaven's sakes? How else will they hear other than what they see in us? We need more anguish. Question three, do you anguish over those who might be your enemies? Now there's a strange question, <laughs> you know? But it shouldn't be because Jesus said, love your enemies. As he hung on the cross, he said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. To many of the Jews, Paul was the enemy. They hated him. They followed him from town to town. And they tried to stir up trouble and opposition. But Paul said concerning his enemies, I would be ready to go to hell if I could, if, my, if only my Jewish brothers and sisters could be saved my enemies. How do you feel about those who hate you? Perhaps you wish they'd go to hell and get out of your life. I, that's a little harsh, but is that what we think? For many of them, that might happen. And then how would you feel? Do you anguish over those who may be your enemies? Question number four. Do you anguish over the state of your own soul? Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ? It would be sad if we discussed our concern for others and ignored the most basic issue of all. How's your heart? Are you right with God? Because all that Paul says in Romans is meant to lead you into a correct relationship to God through Jesus Christ. But the teaching of this book will not do you any good unless you personally apply it to your life. So where do you stand with the Lord? You might be religious, but that's not the question. What's the state of your soul? Have you ever believed that he will keep his promise to provide for you eternal life? Are you right with God? Because nothing in the universe matters except that question. I'm gonna let you sit with that for now. You, but you know I'm coming back to it. But let's move on. This section of Romans divides into a couple of divisions, two divisions. He's clearly talking to two different groups. He begins by talking to the weak, and then he's going to pivot very clearly to talk to the strong. So let's explore this. The big question that's coming to their minds in light of what he said, I think, is this. Has God rejected his people? Has he rejected us as Israel? And the answer is no in this message to the weak. So let's summarize what he has to say to them in chapter 9 through about uh, chapter 10, verse 10. Or I'm sorry, through chapter 11, verse 10. And he summarizes it with three words. You get these three words, you know the message to the, to the weak. First word is election. God's faithful to Israel by electing Israelites. 
means he makes a choice. He chose them as a people. Chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. I ask then, did God reject his people? Well, by no means. I'm an Israelite myself, he says. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. He elected us. Verse 7, what then? Another one of those questions. What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect, the chosen among them, did. But the others were hardened. This concept of foreknowledge and this concept of election is the sovereign hand of God. God knew in advance some would believe and some would not. Some will prove faithful, some will not. But in spite of the knowledge of God, God will remain faithful to Israel in some surprising ways. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to bring Gentiles into the family as part of the election of God. Word number two is remnant. Verse five, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And Paul captures himself as part of that remnant with a faithful Israel. And he mentions Elijah and the 7,000 who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. And he says, you know, this election is going to lead to a remnant. God chose some. And both of them are the results of word number three, grace. Verse five, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. There's the heart of the message to the weak. You're trying to make your salvation all this stuff you have to do. But Paul says the work of God in redemption is not dependent on your personal status, not dependent on whether or not you follow the Torah or the law. Because if grace is based on works, it's not grace. God redeems because God wants to redeem. It's out of his grace. And so all this talk to the weak should bring out a couple of things. It should comfort them and it should warn them. It should comfort them. They're still elect. There's a remnant. They are the recipient of grace. But it's a warning. You better stay faithful to that. For the ways of God are surprisingly sovereign. Salvation is by grace, through faith. So what are you pressing these Gentiles to do all this Jewish stuff? That's part of the law. You don't get a right standing with God by doing stuff. The message to the weak. Then he pivots, beginning about at verse 11, but especially at verse 13 of chapter 11, and he talks to the strong. Instead of looking over here at the weak, now Phoebe's starting to look at the strong. She's not looking at Jews anymore, but to the, to the Gentiles, verse 11 of chapter 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Well, not at all. Rather, because their transgression, their sin, their salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious or, or energetic. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring when they finally all get back together? And then verse 13, he says it very clearly, I am talking to Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry. And what does he say to the strong? He says they've been grafted into the roots of the covenant. And the unbelieving 
Jews have been torn off. But he warns the strong, you better watch it the way you act. This is not a source of pride. You know, don't treat them, the, the weak, with a, any kind of sense of, of you're better than they are. Because that disobedience could get you torn off as well. Israel, seeing the Gentiles grafted in, will cause some jealousy or some zeal, and eventually they'll be grafted back in themselves. And he says to the strong two points of warning in this text. He warns them two things. By the way, we're the strong, right? The Gentiles. Number one, do not boast. Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. The root, these covenant promises made to Abraham, the tree, true believers in every age who embrace that covenant, this nourishing sap, the, the blessing of salvation from God, these cultivated, unbroken, the, broken, the cultivated broken branches are, are unbelieving Israel, and the wild, uncultured, that's us, that's Gentiles, believing Gentiles. They've been grafted in. Salvation is now extended to them. We weren't originally invited. But because somebody didn't come, we got to come. It's like going to a five-star restaurant without a reservation. And you go, oh, we can't let you in on a reservation. Oh, wait, somebody canceled. We got a table for you. That's what's going on. We get the table that was meant for somebody else. Therefore, Paul's point is don't boast about how lucky you are and don't think you deserve to seat at the table of God. Be grateful, enjoy the feast, but don't look your nose down on those who aren't there. Do not boast. Second warning, do not be proud. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Whoa. Probably one of the most serious warnings in the New Testament. And I think we've seen it play out throughout history. There was a vibrant church in Asia Minor, Turkey, they got those seven letters, remember? Where are those churches today? They lost their vision, their passion, their purity. There was a vibrant church in North Africa. First it declined and then it disappeared. And once the Muslims conquered Turkey, Christianity virtually disappeared. Today, the land where Paul ministered remains a huge mission field. And what about the church in Italy? church at Rome, vibrant and growing until what? Till Constantine said, okay, we like this faith. And boom, we have the Holy Roman Empire. And once persecution ends, 
the church gets comfortable. They lose the vitality of their faith. Eventually, they sell salvation to get money to build more buildings through a system called indulgences, which provoked Martin Luther to post his 95 theses and spark the Protestant Reformation. I am not taking a swipe at the Catholic Church this morning. That's not my point. History is what it is, and the problem rests not in the Catholic Church, but inside every human heart. It's there we fight the battle against pride and arrogance, and we listen to those whispers, oh, you deserve it. This is your chance to really shine and get what you deserve. But those great churches of the Reformation sprung up in places like Sweden and Denmark and England and Norway. State churches, which are today dead, mostly empty. They have a form of religion but deny the power of God and the gospel. They became complacent. They became fat and bloated and unconcerned, which is probably why fewer than 4% of Europeans today attend any kind of church. Do you like those huge churches in Europe? Then go visit them. Enjoy the architecture, but you'll never hear a gospel message, or rarely will you hear a gospel message preached inside of any of them. That all ended generations ago. Great Britain, the UK, spawned what is, came to be known as the modern evangelical movement. That country is now in need of missionaries. But what about the modern evangelical movement in America? Some are flourish. Some, I think, lie in apathy, just satisfied with where they are, not caring about the world who was lost around them. And many times tradition has taken over from the wind of the Spirit. And we are divided racially and economically and doctrinally and denominationally and spiritually. Today, expectations on pastors are higher than ever and patience with pastors lower than ever. We don't listen to Galatians 5. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. We might not be as well off as we think. But don't miss the, the personal implications of this text. It's easy to survey and say, well, thank the Lord we're not like that. Thank the Lord I'm not like that. But remember, the Jews were set aside because of unbelief. And the unbelief came in spite of having all of those advantages of Romans 9. They had Abraham. They had Moses. They had David and the covenants and the promises. They had the Torah and they had the Messiah. And yet they weren't believing. So they were cut off. But you've got the New Testament. Do not be arrogant. But be afraid, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So are you living by faith? Or does unbelief describe the pattern of your life? Do you live each day by faith, trusting in the mercy of God, knowing you got no other hope? 
Lewis Berry Chafer used to define trusting Christ as the belief that so much so that, that if, 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 I, if he doesn't take me to heaven, I'm not going to go there. But he said it even more pointedly than that. He once said when he dies, if God asks him, why should I let you into heaven? He will reply, I'm trusting Jesus Christ and him alone for my salvation. And then he said, at that point, if God says, that's not enough, Schaefer said, I will simply walk away and burn in hell forever. He's right. If faith in Christ is not enough, then I will go to hell too because I got no plan B. Jesus is my only hope. We live and we die by faith in him. So don't be crowded. Don't be um, proud or cocky or arrogant and certainly don't be lazy. We will be in heaven because of God's kindness and his kindness only. Which returns me to question, penetrating question number four. Do you anguish over the state of your own soul? Where are you in your walk with God? How do you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ? Is he your savior? Because oftentimes we go around life and we think, oh, our problems are so bad. And we forget the endless depth of our problem if we do not know Christ as savior. Do you know Jesus Christ as your savior? Are you sure? It's not a minor issue. What is the state of your soul? What's your heart like? Is it right with God? Because nothing in the universe matters more than knowing Jesus Christ. Do you need to take that next step? What is it? I just need to believe today that he will keep his promises and provide for me eternal life. Well, maybe I've done that. Maybe it's, maybe it's baptism. I've never publicly made and let that decision be made known. Maybe I just, I need to learn to study. I need to learn to pray. I need to learn to serve. I need to do class 201, then 301. What is it? What's the next step in your spiritual journey? Don't get cut off. Take the step. What is the state of your soul? Let's pray. Father in heaven, your grace, your wisdom, your providence, is known by, by election, by your choosing, by this remnant of those who still believe, and by your grace. We have been grafted into this huge tree of the covenant faithfulness of your love. Let us, in our lives, be people of faith that we would believe and we would serve and we would reach out and we would be the hands and feet to people around us who don't know you. And if you've never made sure of your relationship to Christ, just pray something like this in your own heart. Dear God, I know 
that I have failed and I've sinned. But I believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he took the penalty for my sin. And I believe that he can, he can keep his promise to provide for me eternal life. I want to begin that journey of eternal life today. Help me. Let me grow. And Father, for the rest of us, may your spirit speak to us that we might know what step is next. That we might sense the work of God in our heart for the grace and the glory of the Savior in whose hope we're only hoping in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.